Welcome back to another episode of Out of the Blank Podcast. Joe, it's a pleasure to have you back on the show. I knew you couldn't cover Jonestown in one episode, and obviously diving into it after our last discussion, there's probably some areas that we are going to touch upon today. Um, but I had some questions of my own. And my first of all, it's nice to see you. Nice to be back. Nice to see you, man. I got to um, ask, why is, I mean, I guess based on comments, there's a lot of people that said Jim Jones is a leftist. Jim Jones is a communist. Jim Jones is right wing. Jim Jones is this. He's a bunch of different things all jammed into one. And through the documentation, it seems like the prevailing thought about Jim Jones was that he had associated himself with a lot of left wing political figures. Um, but he was a chameleon of sorts. Yes. Yes. So um, and, and this is why uh, this has all the earmarks of intelligence, because it makes it very easy to say that Jim Jones was a communist or a leftist or whatever, because as we discussed last time, he's this super right wing guy. And then he suddenly decides that he's a leftist and he starts getting involved in leftist causes and um, being supportive of like women's rights and rights for African-Americans and also and di people with disabilities. Um, but <laughs> uh, all of these things are designed to sheep dip Jim Jones to make him acceptable. And there's a parallel with Lee Harvey Oswald, okay? Which you know at this time that if, if somebody comes to you and says Lee Harvey Oswald was a leftist because he was part of the Fair Play for Cuba committee, you know that that's not true because Oswald is being sheep dipped and he's the only member of the Fair Play for Cuba committee in New Orleans, like he's, it's his own chapter that he started. And this is part of an intelligence operation. Well, it's the same thing with Jim Jones. So you can't take these things at face value, but because they make public statements to that effect, you can always write a book if you want to. And books have been, plenty of books have been written that say Oswald was a communist or a leftist or whatever. But that's a surface level reading uh, unless you actually know what's going on, like who Guy Bannister is, for example. It's like, why is a communist working with Guy Bannister? Well, he wouldn't be unless it were part of an operation to make him look like a leftist, right? Because Bannister is doing the exact opposite. He's on the opposite side of the spectrum. Well, the same kind of thing is happening with Jim Jones. Now, what about Jim Jones would you say that, I mean, that you could pull out of, maybe just listen to some of his sermons and speeches to be able to decipher if he had a political leaning at all? I mean, I knew a lot of his followers were black and they were, you know, it's just some of the ways he was talking. But I think that was because of the fact that he was friends with people like Huey Newton and others that had this, I mean, already had this kind of dialogue already maybe he picked that up along the way i don't think he necessarily believed like you mentioned in the things that he was saying like young black panther speak but he uh, from what i could see and like i said the documentation it just depends on where you're looking at with him i mean he was inciting violence and riots and things of that sorts and oppression but he was also kind of like back and forth on the things that he would do that wouldn't label him necessarily leftist but would have him fall in the category of in my opinion both or a little bit of socialist communist i i think it's the wrong question okay. so trying to ask what were the political leanings of jim jones I, I think the question just doesn't make any sense because you're not talking about someone who's essentially political right he is uh someone who is operating as what one would call an agent or 
someone who is specifically designed to get people to believe in him, but it's all under false pretenses. Put it this way. If Jim Jones were a leftist who was actually interested in, say, Black women, um, they wouldn't have been beating up Black women at Guyana and making them work in a mine. So it's, it's you know, Joseph Goebbels, right? Joseph Goebbels was a propaganda, propaganda minister for the Nazis. And a lot of people to this day, a lot of like right-wingers will say, well, you know, Hitler was really... Uh, a leftist totalitarian because na national socialism is what the Nazis were. They're, they called themselves national socialists. But Joseph Goebbels put the lie to it. He said, this is the socialism of fools. In other words, they deliberately used a name that sounds very working class and that sounds like, you know, we have solidarity with the people because you're drawing people in and then you're going to establish this fascist state. Jim Jones is doing the same thing, right? He says things that sound like a leftist, but in practice, what is happening again is a concentration camp. So this is not leftist. This is not communist. And it, it doesn't really even make sense to talk about this stuff in those terms because that's not, what, that's not what's happening. This is not, it's not an ideological discussion. Do you know what I mean? It's not like you have, you know, oh, this person's a liberal and this person's a right... No, I mean, Jim Jones is effectively right wing because, yeah, he's doing things that are literally racist and genocidal. Um, but I don't think it makes sense to talk about it in terms of an ideology. I think it's important to, to do so or at least dive down or pull back the layers on it a little bit because what he gets branded as is a cultist, obviously a mad cultist that killed hundreds of people. And I think it's because you cannot decipher what his political tones are. I mean, you can call him a leftist, you can call him whatever you want, but if you boil it down, there is none of that. It's just kind of more of this. And cultist is the safest word you can call him because it's like the religion topic. Me and many others will just wipe their hands with it and be like, yep, yeah, that makes sense. It's something we don't understand. But I think when you boil it down, even with world vision, you can look at World Vision, their whole website's kind of peace and donating to troops and things like this. And then I started finding, and it took a little bit, but I found allegations of them being connected with the CIA. And I'm pretty sure it was exposed either in the 70s or something like that. They were doing something with CIA. So that's the whole thing. Is it necessarily an ideology aspect or is it just a great way as a cover to something a little bit deeper, which when you start diving into Jim Jones, there's a lot of evidence to support that there was intelligence uh, notes on him. And for what purpose, I don't know. Well, so that's the thing, right? So um, that's exactly right. That's why I say that the political discussion is is irrelevant. It's um, because it doesn't have anything to do with that, really. These are These are things that are in service to the maintenance of power in the Western world. And this is the way these guys thought about these things. So even the liberals, what are called the liberals, like George Keenan, was acutely aware that in order to maintain our position in this world, we are going to have to do a number of things that you know, people might not like very much. So George Keenan wrote this famous thing in, I think, 1954. It's in the mid-50s. Um, and again, this guy is a liberal. But he says, you know, Americans, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing, so I may get this slightly wrong, but he says basically, you know, the United States has 5% of the population of the world, but we consume 50% of the resources. 
So if we are going to maintain that status, these are the things we're going to have to do. And so that's not talking about that in terms of like political ideology doesn't really make sense. It's, it's about maintaining our status in order for us to live the lives that we continue to lead. Other people have to be put down. You see, that's, that is the, the actual issue. I get it. I'm just trying to find out how he gets connected with people like Harvey Milk and others, because that's what I would have to think would be that left, not not leftist, but that type of maybe the surface, which is this idea of what everyone I think can agree with is equality and all these types of things. And great speaking in that sense of just having this overall rationale of understanding that we're all human beings. That's the only way I could think of that Harvey Milk or all these others would want to even back him or even Harvey Milk writing a letter. Uh, to President Jimmy Carter, you know, saying how much of a good character person he is, is because there isn't a full connection and understanding of who Jim Jones was. And I do not put all my eggs in the basket of that. He was just really good or good at speaking, able to convince people. There was something else there. I'm not saying that everyone knew who Jim Jones actually was, but there is something that is guiding him to be able to come out as this character. Yeah, there's, and that's a, that's a pretty deep, um, argument to get into. And I'm, there's, there's arguments in, in both directions. In other words, was Harvey Milk sincere? Was George Moscone sincere? Uh, was Willie Brown sincere? Mm. Um, <clears throat> and one of the issues that you come up with, with talking about this stuff is that you can get heavily into things that people would consider very conspiratorial and maybe ridiculous that, um, that there are people who are put into the political system for specific purposes. Now, unfortunately, we know that that has happened. Like that is true sometimes. Um, whether it's specifically true in this instant, I'm not sure. But what we do know is that money was being funneled to Jim Jones through Harvey Milk's office. Very hard to explain that. We could say that, well, Milk thought that genuinely thought that they were doing great things in Guyana. And so it made sense to get this money over there. I would agree with that. Maybe. Um, he never visited. Things- that's the problem. If he would have visited, maybe he would have, you would have saw the money stop funneling in. But if you're just signing checks, you I mean, you're equally as bad, I guess. Yeah. And maybe that's true of Donald Freed too. Although he did see it. Mark Lane, of course, saw it. Um, and they continued to support Jonestown. In fact, it's not just that they continue to They made public statements saying how great it was. It was fantastic. And if you go in and I find that very hard to believe and to take that if you had visited Jonestown in 1975, 1976, uh, that you would say, oh man, how fantastic is this? Really? Now we, but we do know um, that they did try to put up when, as we discussed last time, Congressman Leo Ryan. Yeah, I was gonna. I was gonna say. Yeah, he went back a second time, but someone had. He to tell went back him, the yeah. second time, right? Because the first time they put on a show for him, and they said, "Look how happy these people are." And it just so happened that one of those people slipped him a note, or one of his aides a note that said, "You know, this is, you know, this is a lie, or you know, for the love of God, get me out of here." Whatever it said, and that's why Ryan came back, and because he got that note, so they were capable of like holding things together to make it look like it was okay. Um, on the other hand, we also know that Mark, Mark Lane knew that they were drugging sandwiches, for example, for people that would come. Um, and then he failed to warn them. 
pretty tough, pretty tough to unpack that. But I do think that the that the the looking at the language uh, that people are using publicly, and it's very important that these are public statements, and saying that they're liberal or leftist doesn't really make sense because they would have to do that if it was part of an operation, which it clearly seems to be. We also know, much like the Kennedy assassination, that there are parallels between the Kennedy assassination and other uh, times we've overthrown governments. The same thing is true with, uh, with Dan Mitrioni specifically, but that relate to Jonestown. The same kind of, kinds of things are going on. Now, I know was a, he was a childhood friend of Jim Jones, but Jim Jones made statements about Dan Mitrioni calling him like a psychopath and calling him things of that sort, which makes it difficult to understand because if you're looking at Dan Mitrioni as the way in to the intelligence factor with Jim Jones, at least that's how I'm viewing it right now. Well, Mitri, you have to remember, Mitrioni is dead by 1970. He was killed in Uruguay by a group calling themselves the Tupameros. Um, he was executed. So uh, at that point, it's okay to say that kind of thing. But again, just like saying that uh, Jim Jones is a leftist, you, you have to take it completely out of context. You have to ignore all of his life up until that moment to say that, well, now Jim Jones is a genuine leftist. It's the same thing. He's been friends with Mitrioni his whole life. And when I say friends, they did everything together, like including traveling all over Latin America. I kind of see the wheels turning. Yeah, I'm with you. I don't, like I said, I'm going back to the point. I don't think uh, Jim Jones is a leftist at all. I'm just trying to figure out why he gets painted and distorted in a certain sense. And I think it's because of the aspect we are disconnected from what our intelligence agencies do. And it does get lumped into that conspiracy realm. Uh, if you start talking about MK Ultra and things of that sort, but there's a lot of unexplainable things and it only explainable answer would be that intelligence connection. But Dan Mitrioni, I mean, that's a name I never heard before, but when you start looking up the things that he did, I mean, he revolutionized the way that they interrogate people. I think before the Brazilian pro police just beat people to death and he made it so you could basically effectively torture someone without killing them. But he is attributed for all these projects on the human mind and torture in these ways and stuff that we might actually still use today as well, too. Yeah. Yeah. And, th and that's the, and that's the point um, is that he's part of this operation to help control parts of the world that we insist are under our domain. Right. The United States has always looked upon Latin America as essentially belonging to them, even, even before World War II. That's really the only place that we were interfering with in a major way before World War II, um, maybe uh, Haiti. But um, that comes out of this idea that we're in charge and that we have to make sure that these things go. So like a basic question, like why did so many people, why did so many businesses in America support Hitler, right? Because Hitler was good for business. Leftists, if you start a, um, if you have, if you acquire power in a city or a country or state, and you start behaving like a leftist, which is to say you start instituting protections for the poor and you start social programs, this is viewed as a threat because it's bad for business. It makes it harder for American businesses to go into that country and take over. 
from a business standpoint. It's the same reason why, like, um, if you take funds uh, from the World Bank, like if you're a country and you say, I need, you know, $50, $50 million from the World Bank, uh, the World Bank will give you that money, but it's going to come with a, a contract that you sign and you say, okay, um, yes, we're going to give you this money, uh, but we're also going to build a steel mill, you know, or we're going to allow General Motors to sell cars there or whatever it is. Everyone gets a piece, Joe. Everyone gets a piece. Everyone gets a piece, right. And it's much more orderly if there's a dictatorship in that country because you, you, you don't have that X factor. You say, oh, I don't know. I mean, if we we could sign this, but they're, you know, they've got this big leftist population that's trying to. And then in those countries where there, where there are these leftist movements, these, these uh, trade unionists or workers revolt, guys like Dan Mitrioni are sent in there to put them down. We still do this to this day. I mean, we the United States was involved in the overthrow of Hugo Chavez like 20 years ago. Like this is not that it's not that it's not like it's ancient history. This happened in our lifetime. Now, as it happens in that particular uh, situation, the people ended up restoring Hugo Chavez back to power. That's a long story and a different story. But um, but the point is, is that our foreign policy really hasn't changed very much. And the reason that we have all these what seem like crazy operations is because we're trying to maintain order, literally the world order. You know, everybody talks about the you know NWO, the New World Order. Well, there's there's some justification in that because that language has been used since the '40s. That's what World War II was supposed to do: settle these. You believe that that's why. The Orion was killed was because when he was investigating a lot of the stuff about like kind of church committee operations of the CIA and what those covert things were doing, that the whole going down to this area um, with Jim Jones and seeing that they that was a bait trap type situation. They knew his personality from exploring those operations. Or do you think he uncovered something? That's the question. Well, um, what they knew is that Leo Ryan was a guy who wasn't just going to let it go. There's Leo Ryan is not a guy that you can give him a bunch of money to, to make him go away or, you know, um, film him having sex in a hotel or something, you know, with this, with somebody who's not his wife or, you know, with a kid or whatever they, all that sort of typical blackmail operations. I think they, if they had had that opportunity, they would have done it, but they obviously didn't because he did end up getting killed. Now, whether they specifically set that up as a trick, eh, you know, I don't know. Um, I think that's a harder, that's a, that's a bigger leap. And also it does seem like um, that Lear Ryan's, the actual shooting of Lear Ryan may have been accidental because we don't, we don't really, there was a lot of confusion and we weren't there. And it's possible that one, you know, it, you get these guys who are armed guards and one of them gets a little too ornery and starts shooting. And then once one person shoots, everybody starts shooting. So whether that person was given an order or whether they screwed up or, you know, who knows, I, I wouldn't say. And I wouldn't say that that's a, um, I wouldn't say that that was specifically designed to entice Leo Ryan to go there. It's possible, but I, I can't say that I know that. Now, you had some things that you wanted to talk about that you said that we never got into on the last episode. I know I just asked a bunch of questions of my own knowledge right here, just because I'm I'm curious, because like I said, it's very confusing. The number of people that are killed is confusing. I'm seeing more articles or more things that I came across now that kind of challenge the official suicide narrative. Uh, 
more from an academic standpoint when they talk about that obviously children couldn't suicide themselves. It had to be parents that would be involved in doing that and elderly people as well too couldn't have done that. And the number of people that ran off into the jungle um, that were either dragged back. And obviously you mentioned the corner that talked about people having either syringe marks in the back of their necks or were shot. I mean, there's no way that if you drank a poison, your body convulsing, doing whatever, wouldn't have you fall in a single pattern like all the pictures depict. Yeah, yeah. No, those are clearly lined up. And they also don't have, um, the way I understand it is when you uh, ingest cyanide, you have this like rictus grin that happens after, you know, when you're, you're, you're the way that it causes your, um, your body to go and eh, make this horrible sort of grin and that people don't appear to have that. So it does not appear to be cyanide, you know, but again, that's, I'm not an expert. Um, that's just some basic observations, just like, you know, looking at the photos and you're, you're mentioning like, it doesn't look like maybe it was not, it's, it's pure confusion. We don't know. Um, but we have to base whatever judgments we're making on what we can see and then what's in the documentation. And then to me, I put some stock in the corner because he's the guy who actually looks at the bodies. So to me, that makes sense. Yeah. So that's all I can. And the thing that, that it's almost like, and I kind of stressed this last time I feel is that it's, it's almost not even that it's that the coroner said one thing and then that never made it into the public consciousness. That's what's weird. Why? Why does the story not reflect what the medical examiner is saying about that? Because there's, a, a, you, I'm sure you came across some of them. I may have even sent a couple to you. Um, stories that mentioned that the coroner said this, but that's it. The, there's, there's one story and then it's gone. And then the rest, the whole rest of the reporting on that is cultist, mass suicide, blah, blah, blah. That becomes the narrative. Yeah, which I would engage anybody into just diving into it themselves and actually looking past the original official narrative to look deeper into Jonestown because you come across a lot of things that will make you rethink the whole using the term don't drink the Kool-Aid. Um, yes. Yeah, yes. I think it's, think that's important. But obviously, there's a lot of things we couldn't touch upon on the last episode. and We were going to touch yeah. upon some things this episode. Yeah. So uh, one of the things that, uh, that he had mentioned and that I didn't really – do a deep dive on his Mitrioni himself. Like, how does, how do they, you know, how does this guy, how's this guy involved? Why is he such good friends with Jim Jones? He's a little older than Jim Jones. Um, he was about, I think he was about 15 years older, 10 or 15 years older than him. Um, and Mitrioni was actually born in Italy. He's an, he was an Italian citizen and his family immigrated to Indiana, which is where, um, Jim Jones is from. And we mentioned last time that Mitroni was affiliated with the CIA. We actually have pretty good documentation on that. It's, it's, in practice, it's almost impossible to really say that somebody works for the CIA because the whole idea is if you work for the CIA, you're not going to admit that you work for the CIA. Um, and there's this, uh, speaking of which, there's a conversation between, I think it's Alan Dulles and Richard Russell, in which Russell is trying to figure out um, he, he's asking him, so if, if there were a CIA agent, would they, would they admit to being in the CIA? And Alan Dulles says, no. And says, so there's no way to really know. And Alan Dulles says, no, no, there isn't. Um, I mean, I, I might know, <laughs> but, 
ordinarily an agent's not going to say, yes, I work for the Central Intelligence Agency with a couple of examples. I mean, uh, with a couple of exceptions that have happened in the course of history, usually after they're, they're involved. Um, but in 1959, Mitrioni became an FBI agent. So he's an FBI agent and then later gets connected with the CIA or maybe at the same time, we don't really know. But for sure in 59, it becomes an FBI agent. Uh, which also parallels Lee Harvey Oswald, right? Because uh, Wagoner Carr said that Oswald was an FBI agent and gave even gave his number. And then obviously Oswald has CIA connections out the wazoo. Um, so there's this organization, this setup. And this is where it gets complicated because um, you've- Like the whole case is easy? Come on now. Yeah, right. Yeah, everything's a mess. So, but you have the Central Intelligence Agency, and then you have all these sort of things that come out, all these projects that come from this. And one of those projects is something called the International Department Office of Public Safety, OPS, International uh, Department Office of Public Safety. And it's underneath the CIA, and it's like an Orwellian term, because by public safety, they mean what I was talking about earlier, public safety for people who live in the United States, who are part of the West, and that want to maintain power against all these other countries. So OPS, between uh, 1960 and 1977, were in Brazil. And I mentioned this before, that uh, Dan Mitroni and Jim Jones had gone to Brazil. And this is part of the operations where Mitrioni is training police departments on how to torture people. So the problem in Brazil was that the wrong guy got elected. And his name is João Gaber. And I'm not sure about the pronunciation of that name because it's Portuguese. I, I, I have some French. I have some Spanish. Portuguese, very difficult. It's like French and Spanish got married and had a baby. So his nickname was Django. So I'm just going to call him Django. Okay, very. And so Django, um, the thing that he did is while he was president, is that he started supporting the workers in Brazil. So and they would come to his office, he would he would allow trade unionists, he would allow workers, groups, social groups to come to his office. And this actually shocked people in Brazil, uh, especially the people in power, the, in, in other words, the establishment in Brazil started to not like this guy because he's too much for the people, which is absolutely true. He also increased the minimum wage by 100%. He doubled the minimum wage while he was in office. This is very bad. You know, in the United States, minimum wage has barely moved in 50 years. There's a reason for that. Um, so he's doing these things. And so... What they do is they try to set him up first. They try to make a deal with him. Like, so that happens a lot in these countries. Um, a leader gets elected. He's getting kind of leftist. He's doing some leftist stuff. Hey, maybe we can, let's, let's talk to him. Okay. So there's another thing. There's a thing called the 40 committee. And the 40 committee has people like the attorney general, the CIA director, uh, the president of the National Security Agency, and it, it's like five guys, and they decide they decide and they design covert operations. So one of the things they did with this guy Django is they said maybe we can approach him with somebody that we trust 
and see if we get him to play ball. And this is Henry Kissinger's idea. Henry Kissinger comes up with this. They contact John J. McCloy. John J. McCloy would also be familiar to anybody who studied the Kennedy assassination. John McCloy was, again, one of these liberals, right? He was part of the wise men, what was called the wise men. Speaking of George Keenan, he was, he was another one of the wise men. Um, they were like ad advisors to power, maybe with no official position. McCloy held all kinds of positions in his life. McCloy's like a very important part of 20th century American history. John McCloy became the high commissioner of Germany after World War II. So when the Americans were in Germany sort of running things, the guy that was placed in charge of that is John J. McCloy. When John F. Kennedy is assassinated, Bobby Kennedy makes a famous phone call to John J. McCloy, and he says, were your guys involved in this? Did, you, did your people perpetrate this horror? I think is, is what he says, because he knows McCloy. McCloy is, and, and he's a very trusted guy. Okay, very important. John J. McCloy, it's, it's not that much of a stretch to say that John J. McCloy more or less invents the European Union. He sets these things in motion that eventually become the European Union. Okay, that's how important this guy is. Well, McCloy gets in contact with a guy, one of the higher ups, uh, one of the executives at the uh, at a mining company that operates there in Brazil, and puts him in touch with Django, and they say, "Hey, you want to play ball with us or what?" And Django says, "No." He turns it down. So when he turns that down, the forty committee says, "All right, well, we gotta we gotta overthrow you." Okay. And so that is exactly what happens. In April of 1964, uh, Django is overthrown from his position. And when that happens, there's chaos in, uh, in the country. And all of these leftist groups are trying to take power back. And there's, so there's violence, there's rioting, there's all kinds of stuff. So they send in Dan Mitrioni. And Dan Mitrioni's job is to train the police officers to restrain this leftist insurgency that is coming about because the United States overthrew their democratically elected leader. And by the way, this works. And for, for decades after 1964, uh, Brazil is essentially a dictatorship, a right-wing dictatorship. And this is exactly what the United States is doing over and over and over again. It's the same story over and over and over. And Mitrioni is one of the cogs in the machine. That's his job. And Mitrioni's comment, his famous comment was, um, hopefully I'll get this right. The precise pain in the precise place in the precise amount. That was like his mantra. So we're going to be surgical about how we apply pain to these people. And one of the things that got Mitrioni killed was in 1970, he was doing a demonstration and they just got four random homeless guys. And they said, look, we're going to, and they put electrodes on homeless guys and they demonstrated their techniques. Well, all of them died. So he tortured and murdered a bunch of homeless guys. And Partly because of the bad publicity that came out from that, 
Uh, and because a lot of leftist people were fed up with the fact that he was teaching all of these people all over Latin America how to torture as part of counterinsurgency, he ends up getting executed himself. So that's Dan Mitrioni. And he is connected to all these different covert operations. And those covert operations kind of bleed over into the same forces that are involved in Kennedy assassination. So Operation 40, right? Um, there's the 40 committee, and then there's Operation 40. And again, everybody who does JFK research knows Operation 40 because it goes back to the Bay Pigs. That was the code name for what was supposed to happen uh, in overthrowing Castro. And Operation 40 became public and was a big disaster in 1970 also because a plane that Operation 40 was using crashed and was full of cocaine and heroin to sell, to use, to uh, funnel money to Operation 40, which again is another story that should be very familiar to everybody because that's how it, that's what happened in Iran-Contra. We were, you know, in Iran-Contra, we're supporting this group that does not have popular support and we're selling guns and drugs to fund them. And then that bleeds over into the heroin operation uh, where the CIA is distributing uh, drugs into South Central Los Angeles. Now, speaking of Los Angeles, there's something very interesting that, that connects to this too, all right? So, um, and I don't, I don't see this ever mentioned in, in history books, but the LAPD was specifically also used in some of these operations. So, for example, in 1962, I believe it is, they sent over um, some Los Angeles Police Department officers to Venezuela to assist in the training of the police forces there in tactics of counterinsurgency. So the LAPD is traveling to another country to help with training. How crazy is that? So why the LAPD? Well, I've talked about this before, but the LAPD obviously is hopelessly corrupt. Uh, and also a lot of their officers speak Spanish. So that's another, that's another practical reason why they would be sent. But I also mentioned there was a guy named Daryl Gates who becomes the police chief in Los Angeles, who's a horrible guy. And he is the police chief when Rodney King gets beaten. And he's the guy who institutes the SWAT teams. He's the guy, he doesn't create the SWAT teams, but he is the first officer to create SWAT teams inside the uh, police department. Um, he's also the guy who invented D.A.R.E., like we talked about. Well, who was police chief before Daryl Gates? A guy named Ed Davis. Ed Davis is the police chief when the Manson family blows up. Yeah. So this is why it's such a mess. And this is why when you're talking about politics in California, in Los Angeles, San Francisco, there are tendrils going everywhere. Because it, like, it's like it blurs the line between domestic operations and international operations, right? So when you're talking about, well, like Jesus, he's with the FBI and the LAPD is traveling to Venezuela. Like that's, that's all crazy, but we know it happened. So then what do you do? And so when somebody is trying to analyze all this stuff, 
they're going, what the hell is going on? Because if you take normal sort of left, right principles, or if you just believe what people say publicly, then it's pure confusion because you're like, I don't, I don't know what the hell's going on. But it's because they're part of these operations that are, again, trying to maintain the Western power against forces that are against that are against it sort of because they're leftists or socialists or whatever. And that story is repeated over and over and over. It's the same story all the time. But the players get very interesting. Um, the uh, what was there was one thing I wanted to mention that I feel like I'm missing. Is there a financial interest in Jonestown? Obviously, it was like the MK Ultra stuff with the the hospital kind of testing chemicals. It's a lot similar to like the Tuskegee experiments. Like you're doing it in another country. There's kind of this disconnect from the American public and the American press. But there was a lot of press that really didn't focus so much on the activity of Jonestown. Surprisingly, it wasn't until after it was exposed, um, this mass suicide. And even then, the work on that's a little bit shoddy. Yeah, it's all it's all ignored. And I mean, and if you think about it now, news reporting is not the same. Right. If you turn on any news station right now and you're watching CNN or Fox, I don't care, whatever one you're running, what are the stories about? They're about, uh, you know, Trump and the GOP and they had a debate and but Trump is still beating all those guys and maybe he's going to be the next president. And Joe Biden did this and that. But it doesn't get into any detail about anything that's actually happening. Right. This is, it's all nonsense. And when you see two people debate on television, they're both of, if, if you know anything about this background, you think you guys are debating fantasy land. You know, you guys are, are it's like, you know, you're, you're trying to tell somebody what happened in the Wizard of Oz without mentioning the wizard. You're not going to get the truth that way. You're just going to, you're talking about what the, what the surface is, what the theater is. You're not actually talking about what's happening. And that's the part that, that gets ignored, the substance of what's happening. And why are these people connected? I mean, one of the things about um, the assassination of Harvey Milk that we talked about last time, um, Harvey Milk and George Moscone, right? Both those guys get killed on November 27th, nine days after Jonestown blows up. And I suggested that instead of you know, the Twinkie defense and Dan White's sexual preferences or lack of sexual preferences or whatever the hell is going on, that the real story has to do with the fact that this is a cleanup operation that's protecting a, an experiment that went boom in South America for the United States. And so these guys, they're getting rid of these guys. And, but it's also... <laughs> okay. I'm going to be very, I want to be very straightforward. And I'm going to say the next thing that I'm going to say is speculation on my part. But there are some parallels. When John F. Kennedy is killed, the government knows, the internal government, you know, the Pentagon, the Joint Chiefs, it would make no sense to kill the president if the vice president, the guy that's going to inherit power, has the same views as the president. But they know that Lyndon Johnson doesn't have the same views as Kennedy. And it's been suggested that, therefore, Johnson knows what, what's happening and Johnson becomes the president as a result. 
because they know that Johnson's going to give them the Vietnam War that they desperately need and that Raytheon needs and that Halliburton needs, right? Okay, so in other words, you're killing this person because you know somebody's waiting in the wings. So what happens on the day that Harvey Milk and George Moscone are murdered? Well, who discovers Harvey Milk's body? Diane Feinstein. Diane Feinstein had tried to run for mayor of San Francisco twice before and had been rebuffed. Diane Feinstein finds Harvey Milk's body. And she says, I'm not making this up, that she accidentally put her finger in the hole of one of Harvey Milk's wounds. That's not accidental. She's a sick fuck. That's what it is. This is what she says. But, but so this is the origin of Diane Feinstein. So who becomes the mayor? Diane Feinstein. In, in the aftermath of this whole thing, Diane Feinstein becomes the mayor. And then she's on her way. And then in 1980, she marries a billionaire. She becomes a senator. She's been a nuisance in everybody's lives ever since. Right? And Diane Feinstein is what? She's a Democrat. But she's a fake Democrat. Right? She's against abortion. But she's as rabidly pro-military as you can get. And she's also rabidly pro-business. In fact, she's a landlord. So all of her personal interests are in these right-wing things. They benefit the rich. They benefit the aristocracy. They benefit the military. But she's against abortion. Hey, even Ronald Reagan signed a, a, an abortion ban. When he was governor. And actually, the guy who wrote that bill, or one of the people who was involved in that bill, was George Moscone. And George Moscone did a lot of leftist kind of things. He he put he employed, as I remember, he employed more women than any mayor ever had, and more people of uh, African descent than anybody ever had, and of course, and gays. He was fine with all of that. You know. But he was also a big supporter of Jim Jones for some reason. So yeah, I, I don't blame people for getting confused about this stuff. Do you think it's the 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 reason why they were so connected with Jim Jones because they liked what he was saying about certain things, or do you think it was because he had such a deep connection with some obviously political power behind his? I mean, it would make sense. I mean, if you looked at like the number of people campaign wise, a lot of people that were supporting Jim Jones. I mean, during elections, Jim Jones was having his followers go and try and raise awareness on getting these political candidates uh, elected. So you have to think, I mean, you have a guy like that, whether it's his persuasion power or not, or just the way he's able to form a massive amount of people together in a short amount of time to be able to support a candidate, that's good for your campaigning. I mean, there's not an incentive to go against that guy. You're more likely going to be friends with him. So I don't think that's necessarily a left or right thing. I think that's just smart politics. Well, and what some people have said that were at Jonestown or supporters of Jim Jones is that they participated in a blackmail campaign um, against George Moscone, that they had set him up. Um, in fact, there's even an allegation that they had set him up with like a child or, or somebody who was under 18. And in that way, they were able to get Moscone <clears throat> to back Jim Jones, because he knew this stuff. That's very interesting to me. Um, it's a possibility. 
And could the same thing have happened to Harvey Milk? I don't know. I don't know. But I know there were other people who were set up that way, which I'm not going to discuss right now. But, um, but that is that, something that was thrown around back then. Do you think the Twinkie defense was just an excuse to make sure it wasn't investigated, the actual connections? which is Because I've had, like I said previously, I've talked to exclusive episode on Harvey Milk. But the person I talked to was an LGBTQ historian who never mentioned any Jim Jones connections, anything like that. But she said it was the factor of because he was gay, which would also make sense as well, too. But I think more likely it's probably the Jim Jones connection and investigation into that. The fact that the Twinkie defense is something that was accepted is let alone just laughable. Well, and so here's the thing, right? Um, it, it can be... Again, it's like everything else. It's complicated. Could be multifactorial. It can be multifactorial, absolutely. So, um, but it's also, as I talked about, I think a little bit last time, I have suggested that part of the Manson family operation was to destroy this idea of community that you could live in a commune and in peace and harmony. The way May Brussel used to say that kids would come to her house and just hang out and every, you know, and everybody was treated as family. Okay. So the Manson family puts that to lie. The Manson family destroys the sixties. Well, the same thing could be true of both San Francisco and Jonestown. In other words, this is what happens when you let, you know, gay people into politics. It becomes, you know, you get murders and you get craziness. I mean, there are people who believe this to this day, right? I mean, this is one of the major things that separates people <clears throat> is you have these older sort of right-wing guys who say, well, you know, ever since we started giving rights to blacks and women and gays, the world has gone to hell. Well, um, there was always going to be tension in sharing power with people who have not traditionally had power. But what seems to be happening in the 60s and 70s is that it's then associated with all of this violent stuff. And in the background of all of this is the Zodiac killer. And the last accepted Zodiac killer is like May of 1978. And the Zodiac killer says the people he lists the people he wants to kill. And the first name on that list is police chief Daryl Gates. And the second person is Ed Davis. And then the fifth person is Susie Atkins from the Manson family. I think Eldridge Cleaver is on that list too. Anyway, but see, I, I also think that the Zodiac, this is a whole other discussion that we won't get into, but um, I'm not 100% sold that there was a Zodiac killer. It looks to me like a propaganda operation. And this is basically what May said at the time that she said there were multiple Zodiac killers, which is very possible too. But it looks to me like it's part of this gigantic propaganda operation to make all of this look bad. This is what happens when leftists are in power. Communists, gay people, craziness, and then a bunch of murders because they're a bunch of damn hippies and they don't have respect for people. And, you know, we need to go back to picket fences and white people in charge, et cetera. And that has been like a defining part of the last half century of American politics been obsessed with this stuff i don't disagree 
I just it's hard for me to get to the leftist right wingist blaming on political side things. I get it because the government was probably mostly mindset was right wing. Obviously, I think Kennedy was probably the first. Yeah, the Kennedy was the first to kind of change that a little bit. And we saw what that ended up with. But I don't know. To me, this just seems like the world needs a devil. It needs something, a monster, some type of crazy thing that once this thing is gone, it'll end all the corruption. And then there's like a lull for five years or so and the next thing you know another scandal or some crazy thing gets exposed because they're not they're not not operating they're operating still but it's this factor of the monster you know i mean i i mentioned it with richard nixon even though nobody i'm not a nixon apologist i don't think he was a good president at all i don't think he should have stayed in office but the fact that we only like everything just went away after nixon obviously there's watergate and all that but like we got the monster guys it's like nah i mean there's still evil hoover is still around there's a bunch of people that are still around that we could have easily prosecuted as well too but it was this down with the ship mentality and it's always there has to be one figurehead one devil and once that goes away then we're safe and then another devil will pop up later but that's my mindset of thinking about this yeah and that's that's not wrong um but and what i've sort of thought the way that i think about these things too is that it is in the nature of every bureaucracy to expand right so if you set up a bureaucracy that bureaucracy wants to acquire more resources for itself just as a, as a fact of nature. And a very easy way to do this is to do what you're talking about, is to demonize someone, people. And that's exactly what we've been doing. And um, I would say that the left has demonized Trump uh, and Richard Nixon, the way you're talking about. And it's not that they're not bad guys, they are. But they become a focus, a kind of totem to show you that if you support anything, if you support fiscal responsibility, that means you're in with Trump, right? And the right wing, of course, does the exact opposite. You know, if you guys don't elect me, you, there's going to be a gay guy living next to you, right? Or there's going to be a black guy living next to you. Yeah, they do do or, that, don't they? Or women's going to, you know, still oh got Hillary Clinton, you know. And it's not that I like Hillary Clinton. I don't. But the right is just uber focused on Hillary Clinton. She wears pants. Oh, my God. Right. But this is all stupid. Like this is all this has nothing to do with anything, but it does have to do with the nature of an expanding bureaucracy and acquiring resources for oneself. And this is also what the West is doing in general. And this tends to be the things that if you're in, in real politics, if you're in government, the Democratic Party, and the Republican Party, they tend to agree in areas of foreign policy, like even Bernie Sanders. Right. A lot of people were very disappointed in Bernie Sanders because he seemed to be very interested in socialist things. He wanted to help people and he does. But on foreign policy, he was terrible. Like he's indistinguishable from Hillary Clinton. So that tends to be the things. Everybody agrees that McDonnell Douglas needs millions of dollars. Everybody, you know, agrees that the Pentagon needs a, you know, trillion dollar budget, right? even though they lose money all the time. Um, those are the things that are in, in agreement. And what do those things have to do with? They have to do with power and the acquisition of power by specific bureaucracies. So it just becomes pure self-interest, which is exactly right. And maybe that's not wrong. You know, um, I know, I think Richard's mentioned this before. There's a movie called The Three Days of the Condor. It's a great movie from the 70s with Robert Redford. And at the end of this movie, Robert Redford is going to tell, he's going to blow the lid on the CIA. He's going to go to the New York Times. And there's a guy from the CIA who's talking to him and he says, 
what do you think is going to happen if you do this? Because here's the reality. We need oil for heat. We need to have these resources. And what do you think the American people are going to do the first day that they can't power their heater? They're going to beg us to invade that country. Maybe that's, you know, he might be right. Called supply and demand. And it's pure, but I mean, but... Well, do you think the it's demonization easy to of have... Latin American countries is the like? The, obviously, there's a lot of involvement of intelligence agencies in Latin American countries, and the weird thing is, is that the public is not concerned about it. Um, but these operations have been having happening for a long time. But it was when I was talking to a guest who studied spies and the history of like spying and stuff like that. Some of the very first propaganda films that were ever really pushed out were about Mexico. That Mexico was this horrible place. And if you look, that's like a foreground for spies. And I'm just wondering if it was a great way to cover their asses and not have people want to investigate and go to these places if you demonize it as such. And we know that with other Latin American countries. I mean, that's my own speculation on that part, but it would make a lot of sense. I mean, public would stay away from it much as we stay away from things that get labeled terrorist or things that were labeled back in the day as communist. Yeah. No, I, I, th that's partially right. And uh, there's a good novel by uh, Carlos Fuentes, one great Mexican novelist, one of my favorite, uh, called The Hydra Head. That's a it's it's like a it's a spy novel, but because it's Carlos Fuentes, it's really mostly about um, international politics and how these things are operated by corporations, essentially. But I would propose that there's another reason why. Uh, those propaganda films are made against Mexico. I think I think you're partially right, but also you have to remember we stole a bunch of land from Mexico, right? So it's important to make that seem legitimate. I live in San Antonio. The story of the Alamo, Davy Crockett, Jim Bowie, fiercely defending the Alamo from Santa Ana and the Mexican army. Well, yeah, but what were they doing at the Alamo? We're taking their land. I mean, we're, the United States is encroaching in the South and declaring that this is, and in fact, there was a false flag operation um, that Sam Houston refused to, to uh, participate in. It's kind of a long story, but there was a deliberate provocation to get Americans killed in Mexican territory, which would give us an excuse to go in and take more land. So, and we, so protecting that part of history becomes part of the background. And then everybody just accepts the narrative. It's the same as everything else. Once the narrative is established, in order to find something different, you have to have a historian that's willing to go and look and then actually say what they find. And very few historians are willing to do that. They're not going to, you know, like what is the story of the Alamo from the Mexican side? That was a project that my, my dad was working on. My dad's a historian um, for, for a long time. Because nobody, no one, no one, it's not in the public consciousness. Like what was Santa Ana thinking? What was, what was going on in Mexico, right? Um, and unless you understand this stuff, you just like history is just nonsense, right? And it's not like, in, in, when I talk about this, it's, it's also important to, I don't say that the United States is like, you know, the source of evil in the world. What I'm saying is that all nations operate like this. You know, so Mexico for a while had uh, a French ruler. And 
England, the royal family, those guys are not English. The royal family are Germans. Saxe, Coburg, Gotha, right? The Windsor, Windsor, Windsor doesn't mean anything. They, they called themselves Windsor. They pulled that out of the ether, right? Because they're a bunch of Germans. So a bunch of Germans are in charge of England. They're the royal family. How does this stuff happen? It's very bizarre. Um, my, uh, my dad and I were watching uh, one of my favorite movies. It's called Cross of Iron, Sam Peckinpah picture with uh, James Coburn. And it's about the German retreat from Russia at the end of World War II. So the, the German troops are just getting massacred by the Russians. But one of the characters in it, played by Maximilian Schell, is a, he's a German commandant, but he's Prussian and he's an aristocrat. And what that movie is actually about, it's about the fact that a working soldier like James Coburn, who actually doesn't care about Germany, but cares about the soldiers that he's working with, about doing his job. And then you have this aristocrat who wants the cross of iron so that he can go back to Paris and swan around for his aristocratic friends. And he's also aware, and, the, and he, they, they show this, no matter what happens at the end of World War II, right? Uh, German, Germany wins, Germany loses, whatever. The aristocrats will be untouched. So Maximilian Schell is very aware and it's clear that even with Germany losing the war, he will retain his lands. He will retain his power. And that is true. And I've, I've, I don't think I've ever seen another movie that acknowledges this, that if you go through history, you have, there are different rules for the people who live in that country and for the aristocracy. So that power, it's, it's like a different level, right? You can kill the president, you can overthrow a president, but these aristocratic people who have bloodlines that go back into history, they retain power. It doesn't make any difference. I know that sounds very conspiratorial. Go look. I'm open to everything at this point. Well, and I'm not saying that it's coordinated in some sense, but I am saying that there's an acceptance that the rich are different. I think Fitzgerald said that. I think that's why we call them elites, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They go to elite schools. They, they get training that's different. And uh, I love the fact that this is a movie that actually shows some of that stuff. That, that gives you a little glimpse into the reality of that. Can I reel it back to Jim Jones for – okay. I have to ask. So you think he's FBI, right? No, no. Dan Mitrioni was – not think. Dan Mitrioni is, becomes his FBI in 1959. Uh, Jim Jones, though. Jim Jones is not FBI as far as I know. Jim okay. Jones has ties to the Central Intelligence Agency. But that doesn't mean – Right, that he works for the CIA per se, because the CIA has contract agents and has people that they use in different things. I mean, that was the whole thing about Clay Shaw, right? Clay Shaw was a contract agent for the CIA, although he looks like a spy, to be honest. He's in the import export business, you know, he's kind of aristocratic himself. Actually, that's you know, that sort of makes sense. Um, but he doesn't have to be part of the CIA per se. He's a contract agent, he's somebody who's helpful to the CIA. Because there, he's helpful in this operation. And that's what's going on with Jim Jones. Jim Jones may very well be a CIA agent, but he also may be just a person of influence who they're using. I think the person of influence makes a lot of sense to me. The MK Ultra stuff is why I would say CIA. But then the, in 1997, the government released 15,000 documents on Jonestown. Um, the FBI did specifically, and they destroyed a lot of files as well, too. So 
that's where the curious question for me comes in is like, why does the FBI have this massive amount of files on Jonestown if it's a CIA? Um, because it's Mitrioni. Okay. And like I was saying before, uh, people get hung up on these kind of operations. And it's important to know the distinction because um, in the Kennedy assassination, right? Hoover and the FBI has his own ideas about what's going on. And he may very well support the assassination, um, but that doesn't mean he's just with the CIA or with the Joint Chiefs. He has a fiefdom to protect also. And that seems to be what Hoover is doing in the aftermath or even before. I mean, that's what, you know, when he says, you know, the, the guy in Mexico is not uh, Lee Harvey Oswald, right? He seems to be covering his, his own ass to some extent when he makes statements like that. So, but getting hung up on operationally, is this the NSA or is this, you know, defense intelligence or is this naval intelligence? It's important to deconstruct all that for the research part of it. But they all agree on the grand scale, right? They, they agree that the West should be in power and they all have interests in that regard. They may have internal battles with one another or struggles, but they agree that everybody should retain power because of course they retain power under that structure. Right. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah. It's confusing, but it makes sense. It, it does. It does. And that's why, you know, talk about a hall of mirrors. Um, you know, it's cause, cause it is, it is. It's very, and, and the, what people think are, are outlandish, like it's just crazy. Like, why would we be doing this? Um, there's a document that talks about, um, uh, which I, I failed to mention before, when they were going after Django, um, the first thing that Operation 40 did is they started setting up propaganda. So there's, and there's disinformation and propaganda that goes out against that guy before anything happens. Well, and who's doing that? Frank Sturgis. Of course he is. Sturgis, another guy connected to the Kennedy assassination. And the reason you're finding all of these people connected to each other is because that's their job. They're mechanics. Like, okay, we need a propaganda operation in Guatemala. We need a propaganda operation in Brazil. We need a propaganda operation in the United States. The same guy does all of the work, right? Because that's their specialty. Well, Just yeah. like if you if you want people to get tortured, you send in Dan Mitrioni. Yeah, if you have a team that works, why would you go and try and find a new yeah. team every single time? That's why Jolly West is everywhere, right? Now, can we talk about some of the reasons why Mark Lane was in Jonestown? <laughs> no. <laughs> no, why was he in Jonestown? Um, I've told people to go look, and I really don't want to get into that area. What are your thoughts on Mark Lane? I mean, even after that, even though you liked him from the Kennedy stuff because he was doing a lot of good work, but after the Jonestown research as well, too, you'd have to have some different thoughts about him. Well, I knew right away um, – because May Brussel was suspicious of him instantly. Um, and John Judge knew him pretty well. Although, and we kind of, we had a long conversation. So back when we were uh, talking about who was going to speak at the 50th anniversary in Dallas, um, he said we were going to go ahead and have Mark Lane speak. And I said, really? And he said, well, yeah. I mean, he's, he's very well known. He's very popular. And he has good things to say in general. Um, we don't trust him, but 
you know, he did ignite an entire genre. He ignited a whole lot of people. And even uh, Gary uh, Schoner has said on, I think, on your show that, that Mark Lane was the reason that he got involved in everything in the whole case. Uh, and that's true for uh, a lot of people have told me that, that they went to go see Mark Lane at a university and they their minds were blown and they immediately got involved in the investigation. Um, but again, does that mean that you can trust him? Does that mean that he was, you know, was he, was he on the level? I don't know. I, and I think that's been my position is I don't know. And I mentioned the fact that it was possible that he was blackmailed um, because there is, it, it is certainly possible that he was blackmailed uh, because Rush to Judgment is still a pretty good book. You know? But I also mentioned that there's, I have concerns about Akila Clemens, who is one of the great triumphs of Mark Lane, finding Akila Clemens and getting her to speak on camera in uh, Emilio Antonio's film. Uh, is fantastic. However, she then disappears from history. And I'm concerned because she's a black woman. And, you know, Mark Lane was trying to get other black women sent to Jonestown. Why was he doing that? Do, uh, if we bring it to the Jonestown um, bodies that were found, did you hear any speculation? There was like a report from a Green Beret that talked about that he was ordered to go to Jonestown and take care of any survivors i don't know if you ever saw that or heard anything like that before putting weight into it um i have not heard that before but i do like i know um <laughs> i talked to a guy who was in special forces and he was pretty screwed up he had been he had been in vietnam and he had been one of the guys um so you've probably heard of the my Lai massacre that was reported on okay the my Lai massacre was just one of many similar incidents that happened um, and in fact, there's even a suggestion that the My Lai Massacre is really covering up a whole operation that's going on, um, the Phoenix program, among other things. But, but he was one of those guys who like set fire to little towns and murdered civilians and just, you know, and it really screwed him up. But he told me a story <clears throat> that when Kent State happened, um, there had been another uh, student protest. And it was out, it was on the East coast somewhere. I don't remember exactly where, but he was, they gave him the word. He was operational. He got in a helicopter. They flew him to the university. They were fully armed. They were ready to go. And he said like a minute before they were going to step out of the helicopter and start shooting that they got the, no, don't do it. And they aborted that operation. Um, so yeah, I, I think that's true. I, I would, I mean, I don't know about this particular Green Beret in this instance, but it's not outlandish. It's not beyond the pale. I've had other people tell me that they were involved in similar incidents. Now, did you hear about bodies that were being found later um, by like either in a, a drum, an oil drum? I saw one of those statements that there was two bodies found in an oil drum. The government also had some bodies as well too. I don't know if there's any truth to that matter if there was a cover-up of some sort of some certain instances the fact of the matter is we don't know and there's no real way of knowing because it was such a chaotic event but i have heard the story about the oil drums like kind of like johnny Rosselli, right um, bodies that are stuffed into into oil drums i mean I, it's not implied like I said, not all the people are accounted for that was the thing about the 913 now we know that there must have been more people who disappeared did they flee and never come back did it you know who knows um but 913 doesn't cover it 
or 914 or whatever the number is. And so, and I've seen other numbers like a thousand something, uh, but it's usually in that sort of 900 to a thousand range that you see in the reports after the first, you know, couple of weeks. So, but do, do we know? Jim Jones suicide. Do you think it was a suicide? I I find it hard to believe. Um, just for mere physical evidence, you know, as I talked about last time, you go, and then you, you know, throw the gun 200 yards away. That seems unlikely to me. Uh, it also seems unlikely to me that he would kill himself. That's not typically what would happen in those situations. I mean, you know, um, I, I don't think so. He may, have, he may have died that day. There's some confusion about that too. I mean, he may well have, like I mentioned last time, there were doubles of Jim Jones. He could have escaped. It's possible. Um, but I would think that if he was killed, that he would have been murdered, not suicided. Yeah. Is what's will be like, and maybe for someone that would be looking into Jonestown, like what would be a great start that you would recommend some good sources? Well, um, Jim Hogan wrote a good article about it. I mean, obviously, I'm going to plug my zine, right? Yeah. Someone asked where to find it. This, yes. It's Microcosm Publishing. Um, intro to the Jonestown. It's like four or five bucks. I don't know. It's basically, it's less than the price of coffee. Read um, Harvey Milk's letter as well, too, when you get done. Um. You, you want me to read it now? Yeah, we no, no, no. Do it after you get done finishing your, what you were talking about. Oh, okay. Um, and then, of course, the book um, Secret and Suppressed, if it's still in print, is a terrific. I mean, it's, it has a bunch of terrific stuff anyway, but it also has John Judge's The Black Hole of Guiana. And actually, you can find uh, The Black Hole of Guiana at radical.org, R-A-T-I-C-A-L.org. Uh, it's run by my buddy Dave Radcliffe, who's very well known in, in research circles. Uh, so Ratcliffe.org, he has a, and I think it has a hypertext link to like the different footnotes and stuff. Um, so you can get that there at Radical.org, which is a good site anyway. You should check it out. Um, but yeah, you can get my my thing for a couple bucks uh, and that'll, that'll send you on your way. And then, so in, and the, the important thing is to get a proper context because um, I did an interview a few years ago um, on a really good show called Subliminal Jihad. And those guys were super smart, super interested, uh, but they were still stuck a little bit in that paradigm that they wanted everything to be like, it was a bunch of suicides. And it's important to like get rid of that and start fresh and then look at the evidence and say, what am I actually looking at? What is the evidence that we have suicides? Because when you start doing that, there are, you know, there's no evidence that there were suicides. And it, it doesn't make sense that there would be suicides at this place when you learn all the other details. Um, so it requires a lot of, you know, it's a lot of poking around, a lot of research. What are you going to do? Now, can you read Harvey Milk's letter? Because we didn't do it on the last one. I think it's pretty important because it adds more of the political questions I was trying to ask in the beginning, just because I think it's important when you hear how this guy talks about Jim Jones. It makes it. Yeah, it's, it's wild. Oddly suspicious. Okay. okay, I printed. I printed most of it. I don't know if I printed all of it, but it's. I printed a long section. Okay, so as as mentioned previously, um, Jim Jones had met Rosalind Carter and become friendly 
with Rosalind Carter among all the other people that he met. And <laughs> Harvey Milk wrote a letter entitled In Defense of Jonestown. Some of these things don't age very well. Um, and it goes like this. Dear President Carter, I am the supervisor for District 5 in the city of San Francisco. The People's Temple Christian Church is not located in my district, so I have no political ties or obligations to this church. And I think that's important, too, because that also suggests to me blackmail, right? He's deliberately trying to say, you know, I have there's nothing that's causing me to write this thing. Like, mm. Well, it sounds like he might know what's going on a little bit, and that's why he didn't want to be connected to it. That's what's scary. Yeah. So I am writing to call an urgent concern of theirs to your attention. I am concerned at what I understand is the endorsement of some of our congressmen for the efforts of Timothy Stone against Reverend Jim Jones and the People's Temple. Here are some facts that I feel you should be informed of. Reverend Jones is widely known in the minority communities here and elsewhere as a man of the highest character who has undertaken constructive remedies for social problems, which have been amazing in their scope and effectiveness. He is also highly regarded amongst church, labor, and civic leaders of a wide range of political persuasions. And it's true, as wide a political persuasion as you can get. Uh, he's got Nazis and leftists. Our own board of supervisors has presented Reverend Jones with a certificate of honor unanimously passed by all members. Timothy and Grace Stone, the parties that are attempting to damage Reverend Jones' reputation and seriously disrupt the life of his son, John, have both already been discredited in the newspaper here, in the news uh, media here. The most widely read columnist in the area, Herb Kane, printed Mr. Stone's sworn testimony that John is not his child, but rather Reverend Jones's child. It is outrageous that Timothy Stone could even think of flaunting the situation in front of our congressman with apparently bold-faced lies. I have learned in addition that he has pressured those congressmen towards unwitting compliance with promoting State Department intervention in the custody case now pending in Guyana. Not only is the life of a child at stake, who presently has loving protective parents in Reverend and Mrs. Jones, but our official relations with Guyana could stand to be jeopardized to the potentially great embarrassment of our State Department. Almost a, almost a threat there. There's almost a little bit of there's, there's stuff here you should you should be careful. Mr. President, the actions of Mr. Stone need to be brought to a halt. It is offensive to most in the San Francisco community and all those who know Reverend Jones to see this kind of an outrage taking place. Yeah. And Timothy Stone, of course, is the guy, as I talked about last time, who introduces Jim Jones to all of these political leaders in California. So what the hell's going on with that? I mean, what are your thoughts, dude, on Harvey Milk, man? Well, I think it's very hard to, uh, to explain. Why does he write this letter? Why is he so specific? He says that, that Timothy Stone and his wife have already been discredited by the media. And remember, assistant district attorney in San Francisco. A public figure, an important figure, not a dummy. Harvey Milk says, you know, this guy's crazy. And he also says that Jim Jones is actually the father of his kid. And that's also very weird. Um, so, yeah. No, I think it's troubling. It's 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 wild. 
that's a tough one for me because isn't didn't Bugilosi have a little bit of a bend to his men, uh, mental health a little bit? He also uh, claimed that the milkman had, you know, impregnated. You know, he wasn't the father of the actual. Or no, was it? Yeah, the milkman was the father of his baby or something like that. Yeah, I don't know if I would I would draw that in, um, but it is weird. Yeah, yeah, the milkman. That's funny. So hold um, arrest yeah, record it's, reports on it as well too. Yeah, yeah, it's damn peculiar. Like it's a lot weird. of things that were going on in California. It's. I mean, is it just weird that there's this these political figures that end up having like some type of scandal like that, or some people that we would might hold at higher authority or esteem end up having like this kind of weird kind of dark past or dark history and it just never gets talked about like the fact that vincent bugilosi is still recommended as like one of the nation's top elite class prosecutors and you know lawyers always mention him all the time as well too where i'm like isn't there like i know there's like not a whole lot of publicity on the scandal aspect of things i'm not going to talk trash on a dead person but the fact that the history books and all this are still recommending his work is kind of like we don't do that with any other people that are known in the moment that they're caught to have that type of like at least historical record well there's there's two things um the first thing i would say is that every human being is an encyclopedia, right? Is a universe of its own. And I don't think that any one incident can really define a person, right? In other words, you can have somebody who's done good things and you can have somebody who's done horrendous things. And the horrendous things may or may not invalidate the good things. There's kind of a witch hunt mentality. And actually, unfortunately, it's part of the left. It's a big, big aspect of the left of, you know, you're canceled because you did this thing that I don't like. And human beings are complicated. And they do different things. But the other thing is that there's a school of thought that says that unless you have something in your background, you can't attain political power because you have to have something that could be wielded against you if we need to get rid of you, you know, in case you decide to, you know, treat some investigation that we don't want you to investigate as a reality, uh, we need to have pictures of you with, you know, somebody else's wife or whatever, because that way we know you'll play ball when push comes to shove. And I think that's part of like, for example, you've, you've heard the stories about uh, secret societies, like in Yale, um, you know, skull and bones. One of the rituals is everybody gets in a circle and they jerk off and they talk about all their sex fetishes or whatever. And I, I think that, you know, and the idea it's a bonding situation, very you know, bizarre bonding. Um, but uh, I think the point is, is that we know you and we know where your skeletons are buried in case you decide to go against the group. So there is a self-protective aspect to that, I think. Well, Joe, you've given me enough of your time, man. Is there a place where people can find your links? Yeah. Uh, Joe Green, JFK, usual places, uh, hiddenhistorycenter.org. Um, say something real press. Um, and of course, the, the Center for Deep Political Research, which doesn't have a website per se, but is on Facebook and other places. So yeah, but Joe Green JFK is the basic one. I'm going to link all those in the description. It's been a pleasure chatting. Thanks everybody for listening to this episode of Out of the Blank Podcast. Stay tuned for our next episode.